You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Last week, I posted this, and it said, I'm getting older, but this does not get old. Um, It is hard. Uh, You know, Sundays, for those that don't know, this is just one more service that we do. It's just at 8 o'clock at night. And so tonight, we're back at it. And for those of you that are in bed that are 46, I'm still going. Um, And I know everyone's going to say, 46 is still so young. You have no idea. I know, but I don't know (laughs) how much longer. No, I I absolutely love it. And uh, a few reasons that I love this. Uh, It represents the heart of this church. Not to mention all the adults every week that serve at the walk the food that's provided at the end of the service. Um, I want to tell you a little bit of a story that indicates the heart of the church. There was a student last week that noticed one of our adults wearing one of those walk shirts. And the student said, by the way, this adult's in his 50s. student said to the adult, hey, where can I get one of those shirts? And the adult's just showing him where to go to get the groom. And he's like, I don't know. Takes it off right there. And gives it to the student. Now, his wife ran off in total embarrassment. <laughs> and somebody gave him a jacket, and he wore a jacket with no shirt under it for the rest of the night. But it was a beautiful reminder that Severe Heights not only loves the city, but Severe Heights loves college students. And that gesture is an incredible parallel with this series entitled Lost in Love. Previously, we took a dive last week into Luke 15. And we were reminded about the heart of Jesus. We looked at a couple significant questions. How did Jesus, the only perfect person in all human history, manage to always attract notoriously imperfect people? And what was it about Jesus, the only perfect person in all human history, that was so attracted to notoriously imperfect people? We were reminded, as you read through the Gospels, You notice quickly that even though Jesus claimed to be God, he did not spend all his time with godly people. Even though Jesus was religious, he didn't spend all of his time with religious people. And even though Jesus was righteousness with skin on, he spent a whole lot of time with messed up people. And as we examine the gospel accounts and see the encounters that Jesus had with people, people understood that they were nothing like Jesus, yet They weren't intimidated to be with Jesus. As a matter of fact, they knew that Jesus was in a different category. And as they'd spend time with Jesus, they would think thoughts like, if he only knew what I did last night, last year. If he only knew what I did last last semester, I, I don't think he would want to talk with me. And yet, it was a reminder that that Jesus loved them. Which is a reminder to anyone in this room that doesn't consider yourself godly, religious, or righteous. Like you have a messed up life. Understand, if you could go back to the first century in Jewish culture and you were to see Jesus, you would have liked Jesus. And we said this last week, not only have you heard over and over again that that Jesus loves you. Not only would you have liked Jesus, Jesus would have liked you And on a completely different note, when you read the gospel accounts, it's crazy in the first century. The people in the first century... They considered themselves to be godly, righteous, and religious. They had a problem with Jesus. Because he spent so much time 
with people that were nothing like him. And the people nothing like him spent so much time enjoying the company of Jesus. So much so that the people that considered themselves righteous, godly, and religious were the ones that paved the way for Jesus to be crucified. The reason we looked into this with depth is because as we consider the observations, there are serious implications for us as a church. On behalf of the local church, the New Testament church is called to be the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the mouth of Jesus. So when people come to this gathering, they should see a reflection of Jesus. Can I tell you something? That's why that shirt story at the beginning is such a big deal to me. And what's eye-opening on behalf of us being a reflection of who Jesus is all across this city, you think about it. The most religious, the most righteous, the most godly, they gather at a local church on Sundays. And the most unrighteous, the most unholy, the most not religious, they stay away. Which brings something interesting up. For some reason, churches don't have the same effect on the non-religious, unrighteous, and ungodly that Jesus did. And as I said last week, it's not an indictment. It's just a fact. So, what does all this mean for us? Whether you consider yourself religious, righteous, godly, or the polar opposite, not at all. You're messy. You're messed up. You're confused. Well, truth be told, there are implications for every one of us in this room and for us as a church, and that's why we're diving into Luke 15. And previously in this message, as we launched the series, Jesus begins teaching and a crowd gathers. In this crowd, there are tax collectors and there are sinners. There are Pharisees and teachers of the law. The tax collectors, the sinners, they're close. They're listening close, front row. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're on the back row and they're muttering. They're bothered because those furthest from God seem to be closest to Jesus. Once again, it's irritating them. So to address the issue in typical Jesus style, Jesus tells three stories, three parables. We looked at two of them last week. He looks into the eyes of the audience, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. And he says, suppose, suppose you had a hundred sheep and you lost one. Wouldn't you stop everything to go find the one? Like you would leave the 99 to the side and you would focus in hard on what's lost. And when you found that one, wouldn't you pick it up and put it on your shoulders and throw a party and tell all your friends and family to rejoice with you? You found the one? Everybody's in the room. They're like, yeah, that's exactly what we would do. Tax collectors would do that. The sinners would do that. The different categories of Pharisees, teachers of the law, they're all in total agreement. Yeah, that's what we do. Then Jesus launched into a second story. He's like, or suppose, suppose um, a woman was given the gift of her father um, of a headband that served kind of like a dowry with 10 different coins. And these 10 coins were a gift to the soon-to-be husband. And one day she looks into the mirror before she goes outside and she sees there's just nine coins. One of them's missing. Uh, the one that's missing is just dangling with a thread. He said, wouldn't she stop everything? Tell her friends to help and she'd light a lamp. She, she'd sweep the floor. She'd look under the bed. She would do all it takes to find the one because her leaving would be like one of the ladies in this room today leaving with a wedding band with the stone missing. Everybody's like, yeah, we'd do the same thing. What Jesus was doing is highlighting a simple principle that all of us embrace, and that is when something's lost, 
you focus on what's lost. And then when you have this celebration, Jesus says, he summarized it this way, in the same way. I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Meaning one person that is far from God who repents. They change the way they think about God and they change the way they think about themselves in relation to God. And for the first time in the chapter, all of a sudden, the audience, the tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you and me, we're starting to get a little bit of clarity on the tension. The tension, the question that we addressed at the beginning of this series. What was it about Jesus, the only perfect person in all human history, that was so attracted to notoriously imperfect people, meaning the lost, that he would focus on what's lost? Well, the audience is starting to get clarity, too. It's starting to make sense. But they're still a little confused. Um, They've heard Jesus tell parables before. They know someone in the story is always God. Someone in the story is probably themselves. On behalf of the 99, the the, uh, Pharisees and tax collectors of all, they're like, okay, we're probably the 99 sheep, and I'm guessing we're the nine coins. We are are safe, we are secure, and we are shiny. Tax collectors are sitting there probably thinking, you know what, I I guess we're that one. Uh, The one sheep that's gone, the one coin that's lost. But we need a little bit more clarity on this. And so what Jesus does, and this is where we are today, he launches into the third story. The story um, that many have referred to, you might even see it as a heading in your Bible, called The Lost or the Prodigal Son. Over the next three weeks, we will be in this story as we are in this series, Lost and Loved. Today, I only want us to look at one part, the wayward son. As we look at the wayward son, I want you to consider, you and I aren't just in the audience among the Pharisees, teachers of the law, tax collectors, and sinners. Ready? We're not just among the audience. We find ourselves in the story. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between the sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and he moved to a distant land. There he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he started to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked, to, looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have good enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. Uh, to start, let's, um, let's go back to childhood. I'm going to need a show of hands. How many remember a time you tried to run away from home? Let's keep it up for a second. I just want to see. All right. You either planned to or you actually did it. Most of us in this room packed a bag or at least had a plan. On behalf of me, mine took place 
and I ran to my backyard. I remember distinctly flipping over four garbage cans, grabbing a piece of plywood and making a makeshift home and sitting underneath it, convinced that I was gone. The whole moment was ruined as I looked to the top floor at our house, the second floor right over the deck, and there's mom laughing in the window. It just made me that much more angry. We laugh at stories like this, and you've got yours, but truth be told, we all have stories affiliated with running away, and it doesn't go away with age, meaning we don't outgrow it. There's something inside of every person in this room that likes to run. On behalf of the story that Jesus just told, there are significant observations. Truth be told, there's a lot of similarities that we have with them. Today, my hope, my prayer is that we could connect the dots. As we observed last week, like I said earlier, we're not just among the audience in Jesus' story. We also find ourselves in the story. I say this all the time. Too often, like when you and I do a Bible study or we open God's Word, we place ourselves above the characters rather than among the characters. So, so let's slip the sandals on today. And let's think through. Let's watch carefully. Let's connect the dots. Let's feel the weight on behalf of this story. Number one, I want us to see the son's request. And it's crazy. Verse 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. I guarantee when Jesus tells this part of the story, the audience around him gasped. Because for the younger son to ask that question, he's saying, Dad, can we go ahead and act like you're dead? It's been headed this way for a while. You know what our relationship's like. Let's just face the facts, Dad. Better be, it would be better off if, if I left. And we go ahead and act like you're dead. And you give me what's mine. I want to ask a question. Why did the younger son make such a request? Why in a sense would he really say, Dad, I don't love you for who you are. I love you for what you have. And I want what you have. No doubt the son interpreted the father's house rules as a prevention from something good. The father to the son was a type of cosmic killjoy, meaning the son genuinely thinks he knows better and he can find satisfaction apart from the father's home. It hadn't even crossed his mind yet that perhaps the father's house rules, the father's will, the father's word, the father's ways, these house rules weren't there to prevent him from something good, perhaps better yet, the Father's house rules, his way, his word, his, his will. It was there to protect him from something bad. And as Jesus tells us, the audience is shocked with the son's request. It's crazy. You could hear a pin drop in the audience because the father has just been rejected. The average dad would have said, okay, I've got an idea. Let's act like you're dead. And if you mention it again your portion of the estate is going to get smaller. So how about um, you go back outside and get to the barn and start cleaning, right? But Jesus surprises the audience with the Father's response. And it's even crazier. In a sense, okay, I'll do it. Verse 12, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. All right, I'll go ahead and pretend I'm dead. I'll give you the portion of the estate. 
that you'd get later now, before I'm gone. And so the father gathers the portion of the son's sheep, oxen, camels, silver, and coins, and he gives it to the younger son. No doubt, as Jesus is telling the story, the audience is on the edge of their seat. Like, he's got their undivided attention. This shouldn't happen. They're asking questions like us. Why is Jesus telling the story? And why is he telling the story this way? Because the audience knows there is an unbelievable, unbearable wait for the father because of the father's response to the son's request. You've got to understand, they knew the father was accepting rejection from the younger son. The younger son vocalized his heart, I don't want anything to do with my father anymore. The audience also knew, the father knew, the distant land would not bring long-term happiness. So the request is heavy for the father. It might bring a little happiness, but it wouldn't last. The son thinks the distant land will provide satisfaction. Only because he thinks it'll create space from him and his father's house rules. But the son's emotions and fantasies hijack the narrative. The, also, the, the audience also understood this, and please bear with me on the way to this. The father knew what he could give his son because of his presence and what he'd have to endure for his son because of his absence. That's why this was shocking. Understand the father knew that he would have to liquidate his assets. The father knew the son would spend it all. The father knew that he would hear the whispers as he walked around town. He can't control his own house. He enabled his own son. Can you imagine the weight affiliated with those words, with the son's absence, and what the father knew that he could provide the son with his own presence? So do you know why Jesus is telling this story? And do you know why Jesus is telling this story this way? Understand, we are the wayward son. And we, you and I, we do the same thing to the father. We'll learn more about this next week. But understand, the father waits to be wanted. And in his love, the father's reach goes to faraway distant lands. And he arranges or he allows random circumstances, random consequences, random events, random happenings to get our attention. That's why some of you are in this room today. You've been in a distant land and somehow something's happened and you're like, okay, he's starting, he's starting to get my attention. Verse 13, the story continues. Our story continues. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and he moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money and wild living. All right, so think about it. He goes to a pawn shop, sells everything, doesn't get a fair value on the inheritance, puts it all in a bag, walks around, shows it off, starts to spend it, makes some friends, makes connections, starts to network, gets a little fame, gets a little notoriety. Everyone knows him. He knows everyone. It's great for a while, but eventually he finds himself feeding pigs. No one craves this space. No one dreams of being addicted. No one hopes for heartbreak. No one desires deep disappointment. No one longs to be lonely. But the wayward son finds himself in this space feeding pigs. Now we find ourselves 
paying close attention and filling the weight and connecting the dots, we see the son's realization. By the way, it's clear-headed. Verse 17, when the son finally came to his senses. That's why it's clear-headed. He's empty. He's tired. He realizes that his dad's servants back home have it better than he does right here. What's crazy, this is the only job that he could get in a time of famine. So think about it. He's out of money. It's a time of famine. When those two combined, he's desperate. He calls all the former connections. They don't return the calls. He's been kicked out of the house. He's trying to get some of those friends to return favors, but they don't even answer the call. And he begins to think when he comes to his senses on behalf of what it was like back home. The very place he ran from because it was preventing him from a good time, he's starting to realize that that was the place where the father cared. He was protecting him from bad times. And the place that he finds himself is exactly what he wanted to avoid. And this time, the owner, quite different from his father. He's cruel, he's calculated, he's calloused, he's hard. And so, we see the son's return. And it's a conscious decision to guess what? To come home. Verse 18, he says to himself, I will rise. And I will go home to my dad and I will say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. This is a beautiful picture of repentance. When you hear repent, understand that the biblical term for repent, the Greek word is metanoia, which means to change the way you think. This young man, the wayward son, has come to a point of repentance. Hit rock bottom, and he's like, okay, I'm changing the way I view my father. I'm changing the way that I view myself. I'm changing the way that I view running. I'm going to change the way that I view returning back home. You notice the beautiful picture of repentance in three statements. I will rise. I will go. And I will say. Hear me out. This is the pivot of the prodigal. And everyone in this room has been a prodigal. Some still are. This is the point where we turn and we make the statement, okay, from this pit, the midst of my poor decisions, where I find myself, I will rise. And because of the Father's love, I I will go and I will vocalize my deep, sincere apologies to the Father. On behalf of all that we've seen, Like the son's request that's crazy, the father's response that it's even crazier. The son's realization that's clear-headed. And the son's response, you know what? I'm going to go home. It's a conscious decision to come home. In light of all this, I want to wrap this up with some observations that hit home with all of us in this room. Number one, if you're in a distant land and you don't know where you and the father stand, he'd love to have you come home. Some in this room, uh, you're struggling with that. We'll look into it more next week. But I'm telling you, if you're struggling, you're far from God, he'd love to have you back. And when you look in his direction, which we will see next week, 
Every time when you pivot, I will rise, I will go, and I will say, every time when you look in his direction, you see compassion, not anger. And I hope that flips some of you upside down. Because as Jesus tells this story, understand what takes place. We'll see it next week as he looks in the direction of the Father. The Father was already looking at him. And Jesus says the Father was already moved with compassion. And the Father was already running toward the Son. And the Father hugs the Son. And then I can just see Jesus looking out of the corner of his eyes at the Pharisees that thought the Son was unclean because he was in a pigsty, feeding pig. I can see Jesus looking in the direction. And after the hug, he says, and the Father kissed him. Some of you might say, but Tim, you have no idea what I've done. Forgive me for using these words, but that's the point of the stinking story. You have no idea. This was as bad as it gets in the first century Jewish culture. And on behalf of whatever you've done, understand, if you pivot and turn to the Father, you will always see compassion. And on behalf of running, guess what? Our running does not have to be to a distant land. It might be Nashville. It might be a freshman year. It might be spring break. It might be an affair. It might be an addiction. It might be a stupid purchase. It might be when the kids finally leave home and it's just the two of you together. It might be a deep relationship that's trending toward marriage with someone that doesn't love the father or the son. It might be running away from church. And I say this kindly. It might be some of you that are still staying home from church when you could come. We all have the wayward son, the heart of the wayward son. Our running doesn't have to be to a distant land. And on behalf of running, we run because we think the father's restricting us. Like the son. I'm telling you, we've all got these fantasies, these ideas that the father's house rules are restricting us. But what if they're protecting us? And on behalf of running... Please listen carefully. The Father won't always stop you from running. You look in the story, he just said, okay. He may actually let you run. And if he lets you run, when he lets you run, it's affiliated with his deep love. Like I said earlier, he's patiently waiting to be wanted. That's what a perfect father does. Real love gives you freedom. He gives you and I freedom to accept him or to reject him. He's not forcing you. And on behalf of running, we found this out, many in this room. The Father won't always protect you from the pain of running. Some are dealing with the consequences of running today. And not only that, you're sitting here today running and exhausted. You're tired of trying. Ultimately, you and I keep running because we think the one thing that we need is more of what we already have. I am the prodigal. I am the wayward son. Every time I run in the direction of unconditional, I run away from unconditional love. And I try to find unconditional love in anything other than God. I am the prodigal. And I want to tell you, it is so exhausting. It is so tiring. You find yourself on a treadmill. Like, like there are good moments, but you always have to wake up the next day. It's exhausting, but good news. Even though you've been running and you may be broken, 
The Father still sees you as loved. And on behalf of His love, on behalf of where you're at, your brokenness, you will never overcome brokenness until you come home to His love. And I still have good news. This moves my heart. The Father won't just take you back. You'll see next week. He'll take you all the way back. The life you've always wanted, it includes Him. And some of us hit rock bottom before we understand it. That's why we read the story. That's why I ask you to connect the dots. And I want to close this week just like I closed last week. If you find yourself in this story, we're all wayward sons. If you've been running, it is not too late to come home. God, I thank you for today. I want to thank you for the way that Jesus tells stories. I thank you for an opportunity today that every person in this room can find themselves in the middle of this story. God, there are many in this room that are dealing with the consequences of running. They decided to run because they didn't like the Father's house rules, felt they were too restrictive. Restricting them from something fun, something good. God, because you know all, you see all, you hang space in the balance. Earth is in your hands. Even the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of God. You turn it wherever you want. God, help us to understand that your house rules aren't to restrict us from something good. It's to protect us from something bad. And I pray today you have our undivided attention. And as you sit there with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to put something in your lap. Some of you today need to pivot. You find yourself in this pit. What would it look like for you to say, okay, I will rise. And I will go, and I will say. Okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to change the way that I think about God. I think about me. I'm going to change the way that I think about my sin, about my running, about returning home. I'm going to match my thinking with what the Bible says. And because Jesus died for my sins, the Father sent his perfect son. I will move into the direction of the Father. And I will say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me and welcome me home. Jesus, I pray that you would use the end of this service to soften hearts and to move souls. I pray that all of us in this room, no matter where we are, we would understand the significance that we were all prodigals. We were all the wayward son, and it causes us to view everything different. So may this song be an anthem of wayward sons that have come home. And may this be a future anthem of the wayward sons and daughters in this room that will come home. And I pray this in Jesus' name.